Welcome to the Zion Church Podcast. We are a church that is passionate about bringing heaven to earth by following Jesus, who demonstrated perfect Christianity. We hope you are blessed by this teaching from Josh Wood. So today I'm going to be kind of kicking off, continuing where we were last week, talking about the promised land. And so we were talking about uh, for the kids to... to draw, uh, to visualize some of the things that, that you might, kids, that in your journey to knowing Jesus more, knowing him better, what are some things that kind of get in the way for you? Could it be you're afraid? Could it be maybe because it's hard to talk to God because you can't see him? Could it be any, you know, sort of worry, anything like that? that if you want to visualize and you can pray about those things and ask God to help you overcome them. And Harry's idea is that uh, you would draw a picture of those things as a giant. Is that right? What it was, has? And you defeating that giant. So one thing that I like to do with, with the boys and sort of equipping them and helping them is that when the enemy comes against you with a lie, with a certain, you know, his version of truth, you, the way that you combat that is with the Word of God. So when the devil came against Jesus, actually with Scripture, Jesus didn't just say, oh, you know, get away from me, Satan, you know, la, 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 I'm not listening to you. He came against that with Scripture that said the opposite thing or in the opposite spirit. So one thing that I always used to like to do when I was younger, actually had a little Gideon's Bible, which is really helpful for this, is that it might say fear. And then it would be different Scriptures where God says, fear not, for I am with you. So for you kids, maybe it might be a great little exercise for you to do during the meeting today that if there's, you know, certain things that might, you know, worry you maybe, you know, in your journey of knowing God is that you can look through your Bibles if you brought your Bibles with you and look for scriptures. If, if your Bible is like mine, right at the end, you've got like a little, little concordance at the back here and it tells you different words. So you can look up joy, peace fear, those kinds of things. If your Bible doesn't have it, maybe mum and dad's does. And you can look at some scriptures that talk about the things that worry you and maybe stop you from, from getting to know God, maybe being distracted. Maybe it's too much video games, boys. I know for my boys that can be a giant that needs to be crushed. <laughs> Are you guys okay out there? You're very quiet. You can talk to me. It's okay. You can smile. My jokes aren't that bad, are they? Just laugh to make me feel better anyway. I'll take it. Well, so what I want to do today is is I want to pick up from where we left off. So uh, if you want to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13, today's message is a bit more of a teach rather than a preach. Okay, so we're going to get into the word. Um, There's some scriptures that I'm just going to quote to you and you can take notes and check it out in your own time. There are other passages that I get you to turn to. And we're also going to look at a few uh, Greek root words, especially today. Is that okay? Digging deep into the Word of God. It's a treasure, treasure trove. Treasure trove. Amazing. So also, yeah, Lise mentioned the School of Kingdom Living, the Kingdom Living School. So we do that on a Thursday night. And so there's a couple of reasons for that is number one is that it's our primary way of discipleship and teaching. So, you know, we get together on Sunday, really, you know, I've got like 30, 40 minutes maybe to share from the Word with you today. But in order to really dig deep into the Word and really pull it apart, 
Uh, we've set aside those Thursday nights. In, in the last, I guess, maybe it's four weeks or something now, we've been doing that. We've been looking at uh, understanding who God is, understanding the truth about God, and then understanding the truth about who we are as His children. Because if you don't know who your father is, then you don't know who you are. If you don't know what DNA the one is that you come from, how do you know the DNA that you carry? And then the flow-on effect is, is once you discover what kind of tree you've become, is that the fruit becomes automatic. The fruit becomes a natural byproduct. Jesus said, therefore make a tree good, and its fruit will be good also. All right, so that's those Thursday nights. So the next few weeks are going to be more hands-on. The first few weeks were quite... Uh, you know, very much a lot of teaching. The next few weeks is more about the outworking of the kingdom. So they're going to be hands-on. We're going to do small group activation time, getting people activated in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so if that's something you want to be a part of, that's here at uh, what time was it, honey? Seven? Seven o'clock on Thursday nights. Amazing. So Numbers chapter 13. So we're not going to read through the whole portion again today because we did last week. It was great passage of scripture, but just to kind of rehash a little recap on what we talked about was about how everything in the Old Testament is what the Bible says, a type and a shadow of new covenant realities. So I'll give a few different examples. I won't go into that today, but the promised land in the children of Israel's journey into the promised land is a type and a shadow of us as new covenant believers stepping into the fullness of the Christian life. You see, God didn't just come and deliver them from Egypt and say, great, now you're free from Egypt. Now you're free from sin and enjoy your life. He took them into something. That's why repentance is such a loaded word because it doesn't just mean turning away from sin, but it also means turning to something, turning to righteousness. So we looked at those two things about the two baptisms. There were two bodies of water that the children of Israel passed through. The Red Sea which represents water baptism, baptism unto death, uh, remission of sin. But then there was a second baptism, a second body of water that they passed through before they stepped into the promised land, and that is a, a river. So anytime we see a river in the Bible, it is always representative of the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. So that second body of water is a type and a shadow of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus came, he preached the gospel, he made disciples, he died on the cross, he was resurrected. And he said, but wait, don't go anywhere just yet. Don't try and enter the promised land just yet. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And from that point onwards, they, the gospel spread. Very significant for us as well. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. So that is a little recap. We, we looked at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I'm going to kind of pick up from that there. But I, I wanted to talk about this. So I've kind of entitled this Overcoming the Giants in Your Promised Land. So the giants that you might be facing might be different to the giants that I'm facing. Because remember, each of the tribes of Israel had a different part of the promised land that was their inheritance. In some portion were the Amalekites and some were the, the Hittites and the Jebusites. So I might be fighting, or for instance, the Jebusites, but you might be fighting the Hittites. So what that means is, is that each of us have different obstacles that are trying to get in the way of us stepping into the promised land. For one of us, it might be fear. 
We might be, have lived a lifetime of fear, and, and fear is one of those things that always tries to stop us from pressing into God, from knowing Him, whatever it might be, from stepping out. But for someone else, fear might not be the problem. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's something else. So uh, we talked last week, and I kind of gave you guys a bit of homework or charged you with thinking about what are some of the obstacles that are stopping me from entering the fullness of God's kingdom? Because it's all there for us. It all belongs to us. We, we looked at that. It says that in Joshua chapter 1. God says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. So before they, they even step foot into the promised land, it actually already belonged to them. But there are some inhabitants in the way that they needed to clear out. So... So yeah, so I hope that maybe you considered some of those things. And if you, as much as you want to, Elise and I are here to help you. This is what we're here for. We're not just here to sing some songs if you listen to, for you to listen to a message and go home. We want to help you grow and mature and grow to a point where the things that were once crushing you, that you crush them under your feet. So that you're able to fully uh, step into this promised life that Jesus has purchased for you. All right? Is that okay? Come on. Excited about that. I hope so. That's where we're going. So we talked about this, identifying some of the giants. Why is it important to identify some giants? And I'm going to look at a couple of things just in my little preamble, my pre-preach preach this morning, this afternoon. I said that on purpose as I looked at my wife with a cheeky look. This afternoon. And... The reason is, is I want to look at a few relational, potential relational giants, because who knows that some of the obstacles that you face in your life aren't just stopping you from stepping into the fullness, but it can also affect your family, it can affect your friendships, it can actually affect your church, the community that you're a part of. So I'm just going to look at a few different things today that can inhibit us from stepping into the fullness, and it's important for us to look at these things. Okay, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about them, but I'm just going to kind of list them out. A couple of them I I might describe a little bit, but the first one is judgment. So discernment sees what's wrong, but not at the cost of love or losing sight of someone's value. Whereas judgment cuts people off, but discernment pulls us closer together. Judgment, that can be a big one. Suspicion untrusting and unsure because we might suspect a person has a bad motive. We might suspect, you know, why they're doing this. How, you know, do, can I really trust them? That's really the heart of things like suspicion is, is a trust issue. So the reality is, is that if you've been alive for any period of time, give me a wave if you've been alive for a little while. Give me a wave if you've been in church for any period of time as well. Yeah, okay. So if you've been alive and if you've been in church for any period of time, you have more than likely experienced some of these things, whether you personally, you know, uh, in your own heart, or whether people against you. Suspicion, rejection, that's a big one. We've all suffered rejection in different ways. Rejection, I looked at a a translation, sorry, a definition for it, to refuse to accept, submit to, believe, or make use of someone. You know, especially if you've been in a church where it's a really big church, maybe there's a lot of people in there. Uh, not everyone, you know, and you get one person usually preaching on a Sunday. 
So for some of us, we have aspirations, things in our heart, things God's put in our heart and our life. And sometimes if you don't get the opportunity to do what you feel that you're burning to do, you can feel a sense of rejection. Offense, that's a big one. So Pastor Don Wallabog, who's the pastor of uh, Harvest Chapel, which is our mother church in the United States, Pennsylvania, uh, he gives an illustration where he preaches about offense and he actually carries around a section of offense, fence paling, a section of it. And he walks around, he puts his hands through it and he gets someone up and he tries to hug them while his arms are through offense. And, and, and the illustration makes a great point is that if you carry offense, it's very hard to love people. Okay, so these are things that God wants to deal with us as individuals and also corporately as the body. These are, things, these are giants that we all have to overcome and slay in order for Zion family to step into the fullness. Okay? Because God wants us all to walk in personal revival, but the reality is, is that corporate revival comes when we all bring our personal revival fire together. And when we're all walking in freedom, we're all walking in the fire of the Holy Ghost, and we all come together, we have a big bonfire. Okay? But these things the enemy can use to hold you back and to hold back your relationships. Uh, disappointment. Yep, we've all probably been disappointed at different times. Jealousy. Gossip. Lust. Guilt. Shame. Condemnation. So the reality is, is that experiencing any of these things or one or more of these things can be hurtful. But the reality is, is that it, you don't have to stay in a place of hurting. These things can hurt you, but God doesn't want you to stay hurting. He wants you to heal. Because if, you, if you're not healed and you're still bleeding and you go and hug someone, guess what's going to happen? You're going to bleed on them. You know, we have that saying, it's a worldly saying, but it's hurting people, what? Hurt people. All right? It's probably not where you thought I would go today, maybe, but here we are. So the reality is, is that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Did he say that? Yeah. Okay, guys, be prepared. There's going to be tough times. All right? There was two men in the parable of uh, the men who built the house on the, on the rock. The other man built his house on the sand. Both of them, both men had a storm come against their house. All right. The guy who built his house on the rock, he didn't get out scot-free. The storm came against him as well. So the reality is, is that in the world, guys, in life, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, you know this, it's kind of like, duh, we're all going to face trouble. We're all going to have obstacles. They're all going to be giants that, are gonna be, uh, com- that we're going to confront. But the reality is, is that uh, trials or tribulation can either make you a victim or it can make you a victor. And it's not the trial that is the problem. You see, it's the way that we see and interact with and handle life's trials and tribulations and problems that actually can determine whether we're a victim or a victor. And that, maybe that might sound a little bit harsh for some people, but we're going to look at that in the Word of God this afternoon. All right, so this is what I, yeah, I quoted Jesus, John chapter 16, 33. He said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Jesus overcame these tribulations so that when we enter into his rest, that we don't have to come under them. We get to go 
above them. We get to trample them under our feet. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ. We're members of Christ's body. And it also says in Ephesians that God has placed all of these things under his feet. So if you're in God's body, if you're in the body of Christ, even if you're his little toe, his pinky toe, guess what? All of these things are under you, under your feet, not above you, underneath you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us this. It says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Wow. Isn't overcome by the world, but overcomes the world. And then he goes and elaborate. And this is where we're getting to today and picking up in Numbers 13. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Some translations say, even our faith. So that's what we're going to look at today. God has made a way for us to overcome the world, and it's through faith. All right. So if you want to, uh, you can turn there if you want with me, but I'm just going to read a couple little verses here out of Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13. And by the way, I'm pretty pumped about having Pat Steele with us in a couple of weeks. Who knows Pat? So he's down in Canberra right now baptizing people in a blood pool out the front of Parliament House. He is an evangelist through and through. I love him. He's a really great guy. He carries the heart of God. And he's going to be ministering here in two Sundays from now. So the Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. beforehand, we're going to hit the streets of Surface Paradise. So after I had my encounter with Jesus at the start of 2009, for probably about two years after that, like every single week I was out on the streets out on the streets for at least a year, maybe 18 months. Every Thursday night, Australia Fair Shopping Center. I was there preaching the gospel, bringing the kingdom, seeing people get saved, seeing people get healed. It was glorious. And uh, I love to get out. I love to give people an encounter with the king and his kingdom. And as we grow as a family, we're going to be doing that stuff more and more. Now, this is the deal, though. You don't have to, but you get to if you want to. All right? It's like when we get our boys to minister with us, we say, hey, boys, if you want to, you can pray for people with us, but you don't have to, all right? So the, the invitation is there. The opportunity is there for you, like Elise said, whether you've done that kind of stuff before or never, never before, to come along, to get equipped, to, to learn and, and to watch and to grow in, uh, in evangelism. So I know actually, um, uh, yeah, Catherine. Catherine had a great uh, testimony. Where are you, Catherine? Give me a wave. It was Catherine, wasn't it, who shared with me about praying for two people this week. Maybe I've got your name wrong. Sorry if I did. Christine. Oh, my gosh. Christine. Sorry, Christine. Where are you? Christine, give me a wave. Hiding somewhere. Okay, you've, she's been wrapped. There she is just there. Hi, Christine. How are you doing? So she shared with me how... Uh, she stepped out for the first time this week and prayed for two people. Is that right? It's a bit nerve-wracking, but yeah, just give her a big clap. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we would love to at some point hear some of those stories as well. And like Elise said, we want to make testimonies a big part of what we do. So Numbers chapter 13. So just to, just to recap Numbers 13, 12 spies, one from each of the tribe of Israel, went into the promised land, okay? They saw it, they came back, they testified, the land is exactly as God said. 
It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. I talked about last week how that's a picture of grace. It's a picture of the finished work of God, the finished work of the cross. They even brought back some of the fruit, some of the grapes, and they got to taste the fruit of the promised land. So that's what we do when we share testimonies is we're giving out some of the fruit from the promised land. Man, this is what God did in my life. This is what God did through my life. That's why we don't despise testimonies. We celebrate them. We don't get jealous of someone. We don't get critical. There's that person again sharing another testimony. We celebrate it because we're celebrating what God is doing on the earth. And if you honor that testimony, if you honor that thing, then actually you're, you're creating a way for you to step into that. Uh, so that's a whole other message. I won't go there. But... <laughs> I'm just going to, yeah, so, so Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. So they saw the land was good. They saw it with their own eyes. Now that's, that's an interesting thing. They saw the, the promised land with their own eyes, but they didn't just see the fruit, did they? They also saw giants. They saw inhabitants in the land. They saw strong cities, fortified cities. And out of those 12 spies, only two of them had a good report. The other 12 said, yep, the land's great, but man, there are some obstacles. There's some giants in the land and there's no way, there is no way that we can take the land. I want to read to you what they said. We looked at last week, but I'm just going to jump into verse 33 of of, uh, Numbers chapter 13. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Listen to this, chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. You know, the interesting thing with that situation is that some of us have actually cried tears that we never needed to cry. The children of Israel had no need to cry and weep in that situation. It's interesting, they saw the fruit, they saw the promised land, but then they saw the giants and they made a self-estimation. Well, that got loud, wasn't it? Self-estimation. They said, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in theirs. They looked at these giant men, these warriors, and they, they looked inside and all they saw was a grasshopper. And because of a wrong perspective, because of unbelief, they weighed themselves short instead of weighing God big and disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land. And it caused an emotional response. You know, emotions aren't bad, but sometimes we don't need to feel or embrace the emotions that come to us. The Bible teaches us that the just shall live by faith, not by feelings. Yeah, but I just feel, yeah, but... The Bible says, don't live by how you feel, you live by faith. Some of us stumble because we live by what feels good, what feels bad, uh, what we, the way that we think, what we think about ourselves, instead of living by what God has spoken. And this is where we're going to get to in a second here. So it sounds a little bit familiar when they cried tears they never needed to cry. It reminds me, of, uh, reminds me rather of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus is going to see uh, the, uh, uh, the Jairus' daughter, 
and he's on the way. The woman with the issue of blood reaches out, and there's a commotion. She gets healed. And then it says in verse 35, Mark chapter 5, it says, While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Full stop. Why trouble the teacher any further? So right then and there, there's been an announcement. There's been a declaration. It's got a full stop at the end. It's pretty, pretty final. Your daughter is dead. Now, this man, when he heard this, as soon as, he heard, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Okay? So this word comes out of this man's mouth. Don't trouble the master. Your daughter's already dead. And it says here, as soon as Jesus heard it, he caught it. He caught this word in transit from again into this man's heart. As soon as he said it, Jesus stepped in and said, don't be afraid. Only believe. He wouldn't let that word take root into the man's heart. And then it goes on to say, he goes to see, uh, he goes to the, to the house. There's a big uh, tumultuous gathering. There are people who are weeping and wailing loudly. Okay. Now, were they crying because of a good motive or a bad motive? It was a good motive, wasn't it? They loved this girl. They were sad that she died. It wasn't a, their emotion wasn't sin, but Jesus' reaction is very interesting in this situation. He said, why make this commotion and weep? The girl is not dead, but sleeping. So Jesus isn't taken away from your suffering. He's not taken away from the hurt or the pain that you've gone through. But he's trying to say to us, there is no need for you to weep. There is another way. There's another reality in play right here that you don't see. You see a girl who looks like she's dead, but that's not what Jesus saw. He saw a girl that was sleeping. I remember when our boys were little, the first time we watched uh, Finding Nemo, Harry was really little, and it gets right to the end of the movie. It's really old, so if I spoil it for you, I'm sorry. It's, you've had 20 years or something to watch it. So. But at the end of the movie, Nemo finally finds his dad, and they get caught in this big fishing net with all these fish, and he gets all the fish to swim down, and they swim down. And at the end of it, uh, his dad, I don't remember the dad's name. Someone can shout it out. Sorry? Marlon. Was it Marlon? Anyway, so he's looking for Nemo. He's looking for his son. And he sees Nemo, who looks like he's dead, on the, on the seafloor, on the sand. And as soon as that happened, I looked to Harry, and he was maybe two or something like that. I'm thinking, oh, no. Well, how's he going to respond? I looked at him in a bit of a, you know, what am I going to say? And he said, it's okay, Dad. Don't worry. He's not dead. He's just sleeping. And I was like, I was convicted. I'm like, wow, that perspective was amazing. He's not dead, he's just sleeping. So we see what we read last week in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews 4 and looking in number, Numbers 13 and 14, we understand that the children of Israel, Hebrews 3 spells it out for us, it says that they didn't enter or they couldn't enter the promised land. Why? Was it because of the giants? Was it because of the fortified cities? Was that the reason why they couldn't enter in? They couldn't enter in because of unbelief. So this is the deal. 
The giant is never your problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fire was not their problem. Peter in the storm, the man who built his house upon the rock, in the storm, the wind and the waves, the storm is never your problem. I remember when I, had, I was given a diagnosis of brain cancer, and I went to the Lord and I prayed, and I'm seeking God about it, and God spoke to me and he said, Josh, who told you you have cancer? And it struck me and it took me right back to the garden. God comes down looking for Adam and Eve and Adam said, we hid because we were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? In other words, I didn't tell you you were naked. You were listening to another voice. So that's what it convicted me. God's saying, in other words to Josh, Josh, I didn't tell you you have cancer. Why do you believe that you have cancer? Now that might be hard for some people to understand, but I'm going to build. I'm going to get to this point, okay? What is faith? What is unbelief? How do we walk in faith? How do we get rid of unbelief out of our life? This is where we're going. All right, we're on a journey. You got your hiking boots with me, with you? Man, we climbed Mount Kosciuszko on Wednesday. That was a good, that was, my nose is still dry, like wind swept and the boys have got a sunburnt. Yep, it was good. Five and a half hour return trip to the highest place in Australia. It was glorious though. We got to sing happy birthday to Elise. And a whole bunch of strangers joined in and sung happy birthday. Happy birthday, sweetheart. You look amazing. You look more beautiful than the day we got together. You do. I love you. Now you're distracting me, honey. No, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, faith and unbelief. This is really vital. Okay, because if unbelief is the one thing that stops us from entering the promised life, we, we ought to know what unbelief is. Would you agree? We ought to fully understand this and know so that we're not living by unbelief, but we're living by faith. All right. So this is what I want you to look at right now. We're going to look at what faith is, what it isn't. You don't have to turn there, but I want, I want to draw your attention to the new covenant now, to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says this, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So that's the New King James. Now, if you like to study Greek and Hebrew, if you like to dig a little bit and understand what the Bible is saying, uh, when it says that phrase, God has dealt or given to each of us, the New King James says, uh, a measure of faith. It actually means the measure of faith. So it's not saying, okay, Elise, yeah, you can have 50% faith. Eden, yeah, 100% for you. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that God has given every one of us enough faith. God has given every one of us the measure of faith. All right? Faith comes from God. We've all been giving the measure. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, it says this. I'm kind of, because I'm reading a lot of scripture, I'm just, I'm not giving you time to turn there, okay? But you can take notes. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 3 says this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by the elders obtained a good testimony. Okay, the NIV puts it this way. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and confident or certain of what we don't yet see. 
Okay, so faith isn't determined by what we see. That's why uh, the children of Israel here, if we read on, it says in uh, Numbers 14, when Joshua and Caleb stood up and they quieted the crowd and said, don't worry, God's given them to us. The giants are our bread. We can go in and take it. It says the children of Israel took up stones to kill them. You see, for someone in unbelief, faith is utterly offensive. It's utterly offensive. If you're someone who walks in faith and you come into contact with someone who lives in a place of unbelief, your faith drives them nuts. They hate it. Well, what makes you think that God's going to... Faith is an offense to unbelief. It's incompatible. Okay. Uh, It's interesting when we look at Romans chapter 10, verse 10, it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, godly understanding first begins in the heart before it enters into into the mind. Demonic or earthly understanding, which is what James says, earthly understanding is first sensual. It involves the senses, it's earthly, it's sensual, it's fleshly. So it first comes through your eye gate into your mind and the plan is that it will get into your heart. But the kingdom of God works the other way around. It works from the spirit into your soul, into your mind, will and emotions and it works itself out into your body and into the world around you. The enemy works the other way. Comes against you with a diagnosis, comes against you with a problem. Comes from the outside, sensual, or sensual wisdom, and tries to get from the outside in, into here. Because faith subverts the flow of, sorry, unbelief subverts the flow of faith. So earthly understanding. You believe with your heart, not with your mind. Did you know that? With the heart one believes under salvation. It doesn't say with the mind. It's not about figuring it all out and having it up here. It's about here. James chapter 2 verse 17 says this, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this is important, especially in the context of entering the promised land. Because you see, God didn't say to the children of Israel, Look, it's all here. I've killed everyone. Just go on in and take over. There was actually something they had to do. Do you see that? God promised them victory. The battle wasn't theirs, it was the Lord, but it involved their action. They had to do something. They had to turn up to battle with their sword sharpened. They had to march around Jericho. It wasn't them that did it, it was God, but they had to show up. That's why after the Great Commission, the Bible says that the disciples went out everywhere preaching the gospel, and it says, and the Lord working with them, confirming the word spoken through the accompanying signs. All right? God wants our involvement. It's fun. It's exciting. Cutting off the giant's head, throwing a stone in Goliath's head and watching him fall is exciting. You were born for adventure. That's why we watch movies. That's why I watch TV shows and read books. Kids play video games and adults play video games too sometimes because we were born for excitement. We were born for adventure. We were born to kick the devil's butt and instead the devil in a lot of ways has gone away with kicking our butt. 
Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the devil. Nothing shall by any means harm you. So imagine if I, in the backyard, you've got a fenced-in backyard, and I'm like, you know, I've got, got some snakes, some snakes somewhere trying to get in the house, and I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to dump all these snakes, I'm going to cast them out of the front yard and put them in the backyard. And then you tell your kids, kids, go out and play in the backyard. That would be an irresponsible dad. Most people would probably agree with me there. But think about this. The Bible says that the devil and his angels have been cast to the earth. Satan is on the earth. He's not in the heavens. He's here. The Bible says that he's the prince of the power of air. The spirit now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, the, the, the thing is, is that Satan was never supposed to be a problem for us. So like, why would God do that? Why would God? Because we were made to crush him under our feet. The fire isn't your problem. The storm isn't your problem. The giants aren't your problem. The devil isn't even your problem. So what is your problem? Unbelief. Let's keep reading. Okay. The just shall live by faith. We talked about that. Not by feelings, not by opinions, but by faith. So... When we talk about Jesus being perfect theology, we talk about Jesus being the exact image, the exact representation of truth and of the Father. Imagine, you know, musicians, I'm not a musician at all, but I remember back in music class when I was in primary school, the music teacher would bring a little, uh, what do you call them, tuning fork. And they would demonstrate a tuning fork and tuning a guitar, an instrument into the sound of middle C or whatever it might be. Jesus, when he came down from heaven, he came as the tuning fork of heaven. This is the sound of heaven. This is what heaven looks like. This is what normal looks like. And all faith is, is allowing God to tune our spirit, soul, and body into tune with the tuning fork of heaven, whose name is Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 17, actually, let's turn there real quick. I know I've quoted a bunch of scripture. I love to quote scripture. You know why? Because it's not about my opinion. I'm not just here to get up and give you psychology, philosophy. I'm here to give you the word of God. All right? This is, this is where it's at. So Matthew chapter 17, turn with me there if you can. Matthew chapter 17. Okay, Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is transfigured on the, mount, on the mountain. He comes back down, and in verse 14, he comes, uh, and, and there's a man, I'll just, I'll read it. Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, so Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain to the multitude, and men came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Pause there for a moment. Right here, this is the only time in all of the Gospels where someone comes for healing and doesn't get healed. 
The only time. Every single other time, it says, and they were all healed. Even in the book of Acts, you read about the early church, it says, and they were all healed. They healed everyone. Jesus is the truth. He's the express image of the Father, the exact representation of the Father, and Jesus healed everyone. I mentioned it last week. This is pretty important for us, but it is always God's will to heal. It is always God's will to heal. Now, the reality is, is that some of us, maybe many of us, have not been taught that. Some of us have been taught, well, you know, who can know the mind of the Lord? Sometimes he will, sometimes he doesn't. Let's just pray and find out. And you know what that actually is? You know, we're actually teaching people. We're actually teaching people how to live by unbelief. We're actually teaching people how to be double-minded. Well, hang on, how can you say that? How can you know what God's will is? Easy. When I look at Jesus, I see the will of God. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, Paul says, Do not be unwise, but be wise and understand what the will of God is. The Old Testament says, Who can know the mind of God? And the New Testament quotes that, and Paul finishes by saying, But we have the mind of Christ. So who can understand God's mind? He, we can understand God's mind. We have the mind of Christ. And every person that came to Christ was healed. All right? So, so this is the only situation. Your disciples couldn't do it. Now, if there was any potential situation for them to make a bad doctrine out of this, it would have been right here. Or if there was any potential situation where Jesus could have said, look, you know, there's a reason why it didn't happen and that's because, you know, it wasn't my will yet and, you know, come back next Wednesday at five o'clock and then it's the right timing. Or he first needs to go and do this and then come back and then I'll heal him or whatever it might be. Jesus never said those things. And I'm going to keep banging this drum for all of eternity because I want to get out all this wrong stuff that we've been taught that is not in line with Jesus. Okay? Jesus, it says this here. What does he do? Verse 17. Then he answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how, shall, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. He was pretty straight up and down. Do you understand that that's what love looks like? Sometimes love's pretty black and white. Sometimes love is a straight shooter. He says, the reason why this isn't happening is because of your faithlessness and your perversion. We'll look at those things in a moment. Perverse generation. And he says, he basically says, how long shall I be with you? Guys, I'm only going to be here for a little while. Sooner, sooner or later, I'm going to go and you're going to be on your own and I can't bail you out. Bring the boy here to me. Listen to what it says. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon. Okay, up until now, it seems like a physical issue. But Jesus knows what's going on. The clue really is in the father's description. For often it throws him into the fire and into the water. It doesn't just say on the grass or on the, on the bed. There's a demon trying to kill this boy. Jesus and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. I'm sure they were embarrassed. I would have been embarrassed. I prayed for people not seeing it happen. Get a little bit embarrassed. What do I do now? What do I say now? I've been in that situation. They came to him privately and this is what Jesus would be saying to me. 
if I went to see someone healed and they didn't get healed, and I turned to him and said, Lord, why didn't it happen? Why, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. There it is again. Wow. Because of your unbelief. Now, if, if we haven't seen this point yet, unbelief is a big deal. It's pretty important, isn't it, to understand what it is and not walk in it. You couldn't do it because of your unbelief. And then he says this, For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, okay, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it, shall, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Your Bible might not say this, your translation, mine says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That's another sermon altogether. But right here, I want us to look at unbelief. And then Jesus gives this, in, this illustration about a mustard seed. Now, has anyone ever seen a mustard seed? It's tiny, okay? So it seems like he's saying, guys, you couldn't do this because you don't have enough faith. That's how they're understanding it. In another place, actually, in the Gospels, I forget the reference, you can check it out. It might be in, in there if you've got a study Bible. But one time the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, surely I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will speak to this mulberry tree and command it to be lifted up in the castle of the sea. Same thing. Lord, increase our faith. He's saying, guys, you don't need more faith. You have the measure of faith. If you're sitting in this room today and you're born of God, guess what? You have enough faith to move a mountain. That, did you notice the little asterisks where he says, and nothing will be impossible for you? Did you notice the little asterisks at the end of that? Terms and conditions apply, and then you go to the bottom. That's unless, of course, it's not the will of God or it's not the right timing or da 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 da, da. Did, Can you see that in your Bible? I'm being a bit cheeky. It's not in there, is it? So God has given us the ability to rearrange the furniture. He's given us the keys to the kingdom. If he's given you the keys, you can do what you want with the kingdom. Do you understand that? He doesn't say, but first check and ask the Father. Father, if it's your will, can I move the mountain? He says, no, you know what? If you want to move that mountain over there, go ahead and do it. Now, some people would liken that as that it's just an illustration. He's just talking about the mountains in your life. And some people preach that. And, and it, there is an application there. This might stretch some of you, but when he talks about moving the mulberry tree, it is just after he curses the tree and it shrivels and dies. And he says, not only will you do what I did to this tree, but you, if you speak to a mountain, he says this, and we'll go to it in a minute, and command this mountain to be moved. So Jesus is telling us as the second Adam, really the last Adam, that he's restoring unto us dominion and authority over creation okay dominion and authority so so the reason why we don't see some of the things that we pray for happen isn't because we don't have enough faith it's because we have too much unbelief too much doubt so I want, to, I want you to look at a couple of things right now. So the, the Greek word for faith is the word pistis, which means persuasion, assurance, belief, fidelity, interestingly enough, faithfulness, 
trustworthy. So the reality is there's two parts of this, is that we can have faith in him because he's faithful. It's what the Bible teaches us about Abraham. When God promised Abraham that he would be a father, the Bible says that he didn't consider his own body. He wasn't living by what he saw, what he felt, what the doctors told him, what his friends told him. Baby, baby, another year's gone by. Every year it's just going to get harder and harder. So the Bible says the way that seems right to a man. Abraham did not listen to any of those things. It says, but he believed God and believed that he who promised was faithful. The only reason why we can have faith is because he who promised is faithful. The interesting thing here, like we read in James, it says faith without works is dead. So did you know, do you guys know Martin Luther, father of the Reformation? What was his great revelation coming out of the Catholic Church? Was that we're saved by grace, not by our works. So he gets this amazing revelation, which is absolutely true. Did you know, though, that it's recorded that Martin Luther, the great father of Reformation, called the book of James a book of stubble? Did you know that? Now imagine this, you grew up in the Catholic Church, it's all about indulgences and won't get history, all about what you do and what you can do to be saved and be healed and all the rest of it, make God happy. He's like, whoa, we don't need to do any of these things, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not about our own works. And then he gets to James and James says, if, if you don't have faith and works, you're not saved by faith alone, but by works. He's like, whoa, hang on a minute, something's not right here, this... But what James is really saying is, is that what we really believe will be manifested in what we do. See, I can say all day long, I believe that if I lay hands on the sick, God will heal them. I can say that all day long. I can walk around the house confessing that, confessing scriptures. But if I never put my hands on a sick person, I ought to question, do I really believe what I say I believe? Because what you believe is revealed through the life that you live. It's true. Matthew chapter 14. I've got so much more to share here. This is just passionate about this topic. Matthew chapter 14. Turn there with me real quick. Just a couple of pages back maybe. Matthew 14 verse 22 to 33. See, when you begin to see this, you see it everywhere through Scripture. I might just, maybe we'll just jump right in. Uh right into uh, maybe verse 26 actually. So Jesus makes his disciples go out on the boat onto the sea and, he, and they're in a storm. They're in the midst of a storm. So they're doing what Jesus said and a storm comes. Who's been there before? Why is this happening? I thought I heard God. Why is there a storm here? You were made to walk on the water. The storm is not your problem. Jesus is walking, comes to them in the ninth watch, walking on the water, the fourth watch, sorry. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, verse 15, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now imagine that, you're in a storm. There's waves, there's wind. This is not just like a peaceful lake and Jesus is just like strolling on the lake and you can see his reflection. There's waves, all right? Jesus is walking on that. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but Jesus is walking on rough seas. He didn't wait for it to come down. Why? Because the waves weren't his problem. 
Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. See, they began to be afraid. Jesus jumped in. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Fear is a killer. Fear takes us to a place of unbelief. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Do you see that? Look what happened next. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So I am so thankful that Peter first walked on the water before he sank. I'm so thankful that he didn't get out of the boat and plunge into the water and then begin to walk on it. You know why? Because it shows me that in the very moment he was sinking, he already had enough faith to walk on it. He had just been walking on it. Think about that. He had the same measure of faith when he was sinking as when he was walking on the water. What was the problem? It says it right here. It says in verse 30. Now, what was Peter's profession before he was a disciple? He was a fisherman. He fished on the sea his whole life. More than likely, his pappy was a fisherman. More than likely, he you know, would be, had been in storms before. He was an experienced fisherman. He knew this sea. And look what happened. Jesus spoke to him and he accounted him who promised this faithful and began to walk on the water. But then in verse 30, it says, but when he saw, when he saw that the what? That the wind was boisterous. I often joke about that, that word and I'm, I'm like, I live in a house with young boys. Imagine a room full of little boys, boisterous. Okay, picture that, wild and crazy. All right. Peter looks around. So if he's, if, he's taken, if he's looking at the wind and the waves, what is he not looking at? Or who's he not looking at? Jesus. So he's looking at his circumstance. He's looking at his natural setting. He's looking at central things and saw that the wind was boisterous. And what did it produce in his heart? He was afraid. Remember the children of Israel, they saw all the fruit, they saw all the goodness, but then they saw the giants and they were afraid. And because of that fear, it put them in a place of unbelief. They couldn't move past it. And immediately, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand. He began to sing, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I want you to have a look at something here. That word, little faith, literally means wavering faith. All right? Look at that word. It doesn't mean a measure. Because if he said, if they said, Lord, increase our faith, and he says, if you have faith this big, you can move a mountain, he's not saying, Peter, you don't have enough faith. Does it? Because he just walked on water. If you look into it, the Greek word, I've got it in here in my notes, I'll find it in a second. But it says it means wavering faith. Why was his faith wavering? Kind of like the wind in the waves, wasn't it? Because he looked with his eyes and what he saw externally got into his 
heart, into his soul, into his mind, and it subverted his faith. That word there, doubt, is the word diacrino, which means to separate thoroughly. It means to discriminate, to hesitate, to judge, to stagger, and to waver. Remember, James talks about that in James chapter 1. He says, if any of, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God for wisdom, because he gives to all liberally and without reproach. But if you ask, let that person ask in faith with no doubting. And then he describes, because he who doubts is, what does it say? The description. This right here. It's like a, a boat, a ship tossed in the wind and the waves, tossed to and fro. Double-mindedness. That's what he says. That man is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So what doubt is, what unbelief is, is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. There could be two outcomes that happen in this situation. Maybe he will give me wisdom. Maybe he won't. I don't really know. It's a maybe prayer. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. What's the common denominator? Maybe. So when we pray prayers like that, guess what happens? Maybe it will happen, maybe it doesn't happen. And that prayer, the result reinforces what we believe. Well, it didn't happen, so I guess it wasn't God's will. Or look, it happened, it must have been God's will this time. No, it's unbelief, it's doubt. I'm going to wrap this up right here. Why did you doubt, O oh, little faith? Here's the word here. Oligopistus. This is the word when he said, O oh, you of little faith. Oligopistus, meaning incredulous, skeptical, disbelieving, or lacking confidence in Christ. That's the strongest definition. Doesn't say only had a tiny little bit, of, didn't have enough. Lacking confidence confidence in faith in Christ sorry doubt double-minded double-mindedness now oh man I could keep going on this for a while but but this is what I want us to to understand as the people of God those things that you listed last week they are not your problem God has already given you the victory over those areas. In fact, the area that that giant inhabits, it actually already belongs to you. That giant is not stopping you from stepping into the promises of God. The only thing that can stop you is doubt and unbelief. So if doubt and unbelief is double-mindedness, wavering, maybe I'm going to walk, maybe I'm going to sink, maybe God will, maybe he won't, and we understand what faith is. Faith is being fully convinced. We looked at it before. Fully convinced. There is no way that there can be any other result but this. It's how, how Abraham was. He locked in and said, I will be the father, a father and father of the multitude. Why is faith so important? And I might finish on this note. You see, I've heard people teach it this way. They say this, 
Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. But I don't agree with that. I spell faith this way. T-R-U-S-T. Faith is spelt trust. And without trust, there is no relationship. This is all about relationship. You see, Jesus doesn't want people just to believe in him. He wants people to believe him. There's a difference. It's not just believing in him. Yes, he's the savior, but he actually wants us to believe what he says and to live by it. When he says, step out of the boat, he wants us to go, yes, sir, King Jesus, I'm come running. Not, oh, Lord, but there's a storm and what do I do? Can you just get rid of this situation? And this is terrible. And I've been in a storm like this before. And if I step out, I might sink and die. <laughs> Peter, snap out of it. <laughs> but this is the deal. I love to go here, but I don't have time. In, uh, in, in the Gospels, in, I'm just trying to find the reference here, in Mark, there's this great passage there. Oh, jeez, I'd love to go there. One minute. No, I can't do it. There's a great passage, okay, of, of Jesus cursing the fig tree, all right? Are you guys familiar with the story? And what happened was is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he, co he comes across a fig tree. I'm just going to turn to it right now. Okay, Mark 11. Is, I just want to get the verse. Mark 11. And I just want to make this real quick. So you, I, I encourage you to read through these passages and read through this especially and just pull it apart, okay? Wrestle with it with the Lord. And so in Mark 11, I, I may mention it just before, uh, in, from verse 12, okay? It says that he came up from Bethany. Bethany's close to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. He goes to it expecting to find a fig, but there's no fig. So he curses the fig tree and says, let, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. They come back to the fig tree in a few verses. But there's a very important lesson that has to do with the fig tree that's sandwiched right in the middle of this story about the fig tree. So if you go down to verse 20, he comes back to the fig tree. But look at what's in between. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, I'm going to paraphrase it, and he begins to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he says here, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So in the John, uh, in the John account of that situation, they said, what sign will you give us for doing these things? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it again. And they're like, it's taken 46 years for us to build this temple. How can you rebuild it in three days? And it says in John, he wasn't speaking about Herod's temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body. All right. So in the new covenant, what is the temple of God? Us. Even our body. Our being. 
spirit, soul, and body. We are individually and collectively, corporately, we are the temple. Now, I believe this right here gives us an insight to how Jesus stewarded his temple. The temple was being misused and it was filled with things that shouldn't have been in there. When Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? They go through the list. Peter says, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. He says, you've been given heavenly revelation. A few verses later, Jesus is telling them that he's going to die. And who knows what Peter does then? He thought he was on a good thing. He's like, man, I'm hearing from God. I'm going to tell Jesus what I think right now. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me. What? Satan. Ouch. Imagine having a conversation with Jesus and you're telling him your great idea and he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus would never do that. What would Jesus do? He will never say that to someone. And then he goes on to say, check this out, look it up. He says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Mindful. Jesus goes through the temple here. He cleanses the temple. He cleans this trash out that shouldn't be in there. The temple's been perverted. The temple's crooked. And then, he, and then in verse 20, he, they go back to the fig tree and now it's dried up from the roots. And Peter, uh, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Verse 21. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Some people say to me, yeah, but well, Josh, I've got faith for a headache, but I don't know if I have faith for a cancer. Why is your faith in your faith? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Why? For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. That is the biggest blank check that was ever written. What is it contingent on? You can speak to the mountain, you can command it to be moved, but he says, and does not doubt in his heart. Now, I believe that in the new covenant, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God and we're the stewards of that temple. And when we see Jesus, what he was saying to Peter was, he says, Peter, this idea that you have, it's actually rooted in hell. It's not the wisdom from above, it's the wisdom of the devil who's using your love for me as an open door, as a point of weakness for you to, to, to believe another word, for you to be double-minded. Get behind me, Satan. We know how Jesus spoke to Satan. We know that the New Testament teaches us that we cast down every thought and imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. Jesus was aggressive, and this is the only time with the temple that we actually physically see, see Jesus rather physically showing any sign of what we could say is aggression. The rest of it, he's touching lepers and hugging people and loving people, and then we get to the temple, and all of a sudden he's made a whip, and he's whipping people and flipping tables over. Why is he reacting that way? Because he will not allow anything in his temple that would pervert or subvert the flow of God's kingdom. So this is the process of the renewing of our mind. This is the process of submitting ourselves, spirit, soul, and body to the Almighty Father, Almighty Father, and allowing Him to 
drive out, to cleanse out the temple of our spirit, soul, and body, get rid of any cobwebs, get rid of any doubt and unbelief, anything we think is wisdom, but it's actually the wisdom that's demonic, to get rid of it so that we can be straight and narrow. That's why he said, crooked and perverse generation. What's something that's perverse? It literally means crooked. He's saying, you're not seeing reality the way that it really is. Your mind is full of the things of men. Your mind is sensual. You're weighing the situation up by what you can see. This boy having an epileptic fit on the ground. Fear's coming into your heart and your mindset, your perspective is perverted. It's twisted. It's crooked. Is this helping anyone? All right. Now I'm going to finish up right now because I could just keep teaching about this all day long, but I'll stop. All right. But... As, as the people of God, God is calling us, guys, not to live according to what we see, but to live according to what he says. Even if we find ourselves in the midst of the wind and the waves, it doesn't affect us. I remember after going through what I did with brain cancer, one day I was in church and I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I saw a picture of Jesus laying down in the boat in the midst of the storm. You guys know that story? I'm finishing. Don't worry, honey. I'm finishing on this. In Australia, people want you to preach, make it 30 minutes. When I go to the US and other countries, it's like, keep preaching, keep preaching. So I'm used to just keep preaching. Keep preaching. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. No, but seriously, Jesus was in the same storm as his disciples. They saw the storm. They were freaked out. And what was he doing? And he was sleeping. So in the spirit, when I saw that picture, in the spirit, this might sound a little hard to understand, but I laid myself down next to Jesus and fell asleep. The disciples woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care about us that we're perishing? Does he care about them? Of course he does. But are they perishing? Or are they like the children of Israel who wept because of the giants? They were crying for no reason, crying over spilt milk. Jesus, what did he do? He rebuked them. You know that? Oh, you of little faith, it's our oligopistus, wavering faith, not confidence, not certainty in me. It's amazing. The Bible says they marveled and said, who is this guy who even has authority over wind and waves? But I want to tell you something. The greatest miracle in that situation wasn't Jesus calming the wind and the waves. The greatest miracle was him sleeping. There's a place that we can live in, in Christ, where we don't even have to calm the wind and the waves. Where we don't even have to wait until God puts the fire out. There's a place that we can live in him where regardless of what the diagnosis is, regardless of what your bank account's telling you, your employer, your spouse, whatever it might be, that that is no longer our problem. That we can sleep in the midst of the wind and the waves. Amen? Praise God. Awesome. So I'm just going to, I'm going to pray and we, we want to, Pray for some people here. I believe that God's going to do some creative miracles today. Actually, in our prayer time this morning, I saw God uh, growing new bones. 
So we've seen God do that a heck of a lot. I could share a million testimonies, but I won't. People who have had car accidents and put back together and bones missing and all that kind of thing. And God just growing bones, growing limbs out, that sort of thing. So we want to pray for you, okay? And, uh, and so I'm going to do this in a second. Uh, I just want to pray for this message. I just want God to seal it in a heart. All right? Is that okay? All right. Because mercy meets us where we're at, but grace takes us to where we're supposed to be. All right, there's a difference between mercy and grace. So, Father, we just thank you for your mercy that you've met us where we're at, even today, Father. But, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is here right now. I can feel it in the room. Grace is right now, and we are saved by grace through faith. So right now, I just pray, Lord, for an impartation of faith. I pray for an impartation of grace, Lord. I just pray that you would pour it out in everyone's heart right now, Father, that we would believe you, that we would not just believe in you, Jesus, but we would believe the very words that come out of your mouth, and we would bank our lives on it. So, Father, I just pray that that would just be released right now, that that faith that's inside of us, that measure of faith would rise up past any form of doubt and unbelief. And Father, I just pray for everyone in this room who's listening to the sound of my voice in any era of our hearts, our minds, where there's perversion, where there's crookedness, where there's the wisdom of this world, where there's doubt and unbelief. Lord, I just pray that you just, just come and just sweep through right now and burn up the chaff. Burn up the chaff. We want to be people of faith. The just shall live by faith. Lord, let that be the declaration of Zion Church. The people would say, see us and go, wow, they are a people of faith. That's what faith looks like. That's what the kingdom looks like. Father, let it be so in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a Zion Church podcast. For more information about Zion Church, go to zionchurch.info. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash zionchurchgc. And on Instagram, we're at zionchurchofficial. 